The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Thank you, Tyler and Kelly. Stocks are higher again, up 1% on the S&P, and the two-year, 10-year spread is about to invert. The most important hour of trading starts now. Welcome, everyone, to Closing Bell. I'm Sarah Eyes, and we've got a great show coming your way, including an exclusive interview with Starboard Value CEO Jeff Smith in just a few moments. Plus, we'll talk to the CEO of Nikola in his first interview since announcing the start of production for Nikola's electric trucks. That stock is up 40 percent in the past month. But first, here's a look at where things stand in the market, a 1 percent gain for the S&P 500. We are going strong, nearing the end of March with a more than 5.5 percent gain for this market. The Nasdaq is in the lead again, 1.7% higher. Big cap tech leads the way. And today we get confirmation from the small cap, something that we have not seen lately, up 2.5% for the Russell 2000. The Dow is lagging up three quarters of 1%. Right now it's up about 254 points. The high of the day was up more than 400. Here are my top takeaways on some big stories today. Robinhood spiking after extending the hours that will let users trade to between 7 a.m. and 8 p.m. Meme trading is back, too, and that's great for Robinhood. Just this week, AMC is up almost 50%. GameStop, up 25%. But the key for Robinhood, it needs to prove it can do well when stocks are in a bear market, too. Not just when they're up and not just when AMC and GameStop are going to the moon. Because that wasn't the case earlier this year, and Robinhood's trading activity ground to a halt, and the stock got slammed. United Health spending $5.4 billion to buy LHC Group. It's the latest major insurer going deeper into home health. Think hospices or at-home nurses and health aides. It's a growing trend as it's considered a lower-cost alternative to nursing homes and hospital stays. And with an aging population, it is all about finding lower-cost solutions. COVID also may have boosted demand for home health. Watch the competitors in the space, Amedesis and Chemed. It is a major trend. And rising gas prices get all the headlines and the hand-wringing, but rising food prices are likely to be more painful for household budgets. For Americans in the lowest income group, food expenditures account for 11% of overall spending, according to new research from Wolf, 7% for high income earners. Gas, on the other hand, only 2 to 3% of spending across the board. Politicians and investors worried about consumers should pay more attention to food. Now let's get straight to our big guest this hour, Starboard Value CEO, Jeff Smith. Jeff, welcome. Good to have you on the show. Great to be here, Sarah. Thanks for having me. And we definitely are going to talk some individual stocks and and your positions, but have to start with a broad question because we've got this unusual thing happening. The yield curve is about to invert the two tens. The stock market is rallying. Do you see that as a signal of recession? And is that something you see in the companies that you're involved with? Yeah, again, Sarah, great, great to be here. Great to be with you. You know, from from our standpoint at Starboard, you know, what we look to do is we look to invest in companies that we think are undervalued. Um, you know, the overall macro environment, of course, comes into play, but it comes into play in terms of how we how we look to analyze companies, how we look to think about their future earnings, how we look to um, to think think through the volatility of the potential results of those companies. And, you know, uncertainty creates a, you know, a larger gap in the variability as it relates to the, the future prospects of those businesses. 
Uh, do we have some concerns? Of course we have some concerns. I always have concerns. We're always looking around corners. Um, so it's, it's a market that we're watching. There's opportunities for us all over the place. When you see stocks, sometimes, you know, stocks with this kind of volatility, we get great opportunities to be able to pounce on companies that we think get, uh, get thrown down. So from our standpoint, we think it's a, it's a good environment, um, but it's also something that, that needs to be watched. Is there a sector or part of the market that, that's seen valuations correct enough that makes it more appealing for you to take your activist stakes? Yeah, I mean, from our standpoint, it's about being able to predict, um, again, within a range of outcomes, the, the top line results and therefore the bottom line results. So companies with, with highly recurring revenue are ones that we're really attracted to, you know, ones that can sustain shocks. And, it's, you know, it's a natural occurrence with what we do in, in our business, because when we, when we take a position in companies, you know, it's going to cause reactions inside the company. You know, management is going to be focused not just on the business or maybe even more so on the business, but also on what they need to do to improve the business. So they need to be companies that have highly recurring revenue uh, that can sustain um, catalysts can sustain someone getting involved. And, and naturally what happens with that is it's also companies that can withstand macro shocks usually because they're so insulated and have highly recurring uh, revenue streams. So let, let's talk Huntsman. That, that was the, it's one of your top holdings. You staged a proxy fight for board seats and, and ended up losing. What happened there from your perspective? Yeah, Sarah. Well, first, let's just let's just define winning and losing for a second. So, um, from our standpoint, you know, we're looking to create value for the benefit of all shareholders, and our investors are also looking for us to create value for all shareholders, of which we're usually one of the larger shareholders. So, winning and losing for us, as well as for investors and shareholders in Huntsman, is creating value for shareholders. And so, since we've been involved in Huntsman, you know, I'm sure you have it up on the screen. You know, stocks up about 50% since we've been involved in Huntsman. I, I don't think any any investor would consider that a loss. Now, that being said, I'm you know I'm enormously competitive, so we're we're not happy about going through a proxy contest and not getting people um, seated on the board. But it's not just about that. It's about how does a company improve? And when we get involved in companies, the one thing I can tell you for sure. As I mentioned before, management and boards are going to have more conversations, more conversations about how they can improve their business, about what needs to happen. They're going to hear from shareholders. So going through a proxy contest has many, many advantages, um, one of which could be getting people on the board, but it's not the only advantage. The other advantage is that Huntsman, the management team and the board has heard from shareholders more than it ever heard from shareholders probably in the last you know, 10 plus years since it's been public. Um, and I think what they heard, what I know they heard, is that what they've been mm -hmm. doing isn't good enough. What they've been doing, you know, they haven't been following through on their promises. And so they've now made new promises, and, and shareholders are going to hold them accountable, including us. So shareholders, research analysts, and I, and I hope the board is going to hold them accountable. No, most notably, they mentioned or, or promised that they're going to sell their textile effects business. They've promised that they're going to improve their operating margins, get them, you know, to 18 to 20 percent or even higher. And, you know, if that happens, there's going to be a lot of value that's created even from here in Huntsman. So from our standpoint, am I happy? No, I don't I don't like losing at anything. But um, as a portfolio manager, am I happy? Yeah, we look to create win win scenarios for ourselves. That's that's what we do. And where we sit right now, 
if this company executes, there's going to be a lot, a lot of value that's created. And if the company doesn't execute, well, I think the board's going to, you know, probably take some action. And if the board doesn't take some action, then shareholders or we can take action later. So you're holding your stake, 8% stake in that company? You're not selling? Because you, you exited Box after that fight went the wrong way for you as well. Well, you know what's interesting, Sarah, is it's, you know, it's not all or none, right? So one of, the, one of the benefits of not being on the board is that we maintain our trading flexibility. And that means that we can make a risk-reward decision with our position, just like every other shareholder can make a risk-reward decision uh, with their position. And so that means we can buy, we can sell. And, you know, if stocks continue to appreciate in value, then, you know, we can reduce those positions. If it comes back down, we can we can buy it again. So Box has performed unbelievably well. You know, from the IPO until our involvement in Box, the stock was down 35%. After our involvement, the stock almost doubled. So, you know, that's that's fantastic. That's what shareholders want. That's that's the catalyst that they want us to be, and that's what our investors want us to do for the benefit of those shareholders. So does that mean we need to continue to own it after the stock has doubled? Certainly not in the same size we had it before. Does that mean that if the stock comes all the way down and they miss their promises, we can always buy back in again and then we can hold them accountable again. I'd be thrilled if we could do that a second time. Jeff, stay with us because we have a lot more to talk about. I want to ask you about the bid for Kohl's, of course, your big stake in GoDaddy and much more. Jeff Smith of Starboard, our special guest. We're going to talk to him on the other side of the break. Just want to point out that we are at session highs. The Nasdaq's up 266 or almost 2 percent as we head into the close with the Dow up 300 points. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Another solid rally on our hands. S&P's up 1.2%. We're back with Starboard Value CEO Jeff Smith. And Jeff, wanted to talk to you about some of your new positions, including GoDaddy, which you've taken a big stake in. And you've had some success in the past in this space with Web.com. What's the plan here? Yeah, uh, look, it is a space, Sarah, that we know really well. It's, uh, you know, we, we love the space. We love the position with GoDaddy. It's a, it's a terrific company. We've had really a great relationship so far with the company. We're looking forward to continuing to work with them. They just, you know, recently, you know, promised, you know, 875 a share, at least in free cash flow per share. And, you know, we think there's more that that's available. So from our standpoint, we think it's a company that's undervalued and we think that it's a company that can perform really well. You know, it's got a nice moat around its business. Is that an area ripe for deals? 
Because that, that, that was what happened in the past. I think Web.com was taken private. There have been a number of deals there. Yeah, I don't know if that's I, I don't know if that's the first choice as it relates to it. I think it's a I think it's a really good company. It's a good company, a good public company. I, look, whatever we invest in, we're looking at companies that are undervalued and undervalued and under earning. So um, mm-hmm. those can be good public companies if they continue to operate really well and improve their operating performance. But of course, any company that's undervalued and under earning can also be you know a target and something that could be acquired. But I, I don't think that's that's the first course of action here at GoDaddy. Well, speaking of something that can be acquired, the firm that you back, Acacia, is one of the was one of the bidders for Kohl's. Put your hat in the ring there at sixty four dollars. It was rejected as as undervaluing the company. But now the company is looking at its options, working with its bankers at Goldman Sachs. Are you still in the running to buy Kohl's? Do you think still think it's a good target? Yeah, Sarah, we really we really love the Kohl's business. Um, so we have a we have, as you mentioned, we have a partnership with with Acacia, um, and it's a terrific partnership where we look for companies that are undervalued that have terrific cash flow. And Kohl's is a, is an underappreciated business uh, that has terrific cash flow, and it's a company that we really would love to own. Um, so you know, that's that's I guess that's that's mostly what I could say about it. But it is a, it is a business that we would love to own. Got it. I know you can't say much more as there, there, there's a process unfolding. You've also had some big success, Jeff, in the restaurant industry when it comes to turnarounds. Darden, Papa John's. Is that industry at this moment ripe for, for activism and, and for some plays? I know Carl Icahn's in McDonald's, for instance, I'm trying to get better treatment for, the, for pork. But is that an area that still interests you? Of course. I mean, I'm still the chair of the of the board of Papa John's, and it's, you know, I love that. It's it's a it's a terrific business. Um, it's a great brand, great products. I love the restaurant industry. We love the restaurant industry. Um, look, honestly, from our standpoint, just about every industry is an opportunity for us. What we do is we look for companies in each industry, and there's always companies that are the, the best performers in the industry, and then there's companies that are poor performers in the industry. And if the companies that are poor performers in the industry have terrific assets, then that's an opportunity uh, for us to get involved and be a catalyst for change and improve the operational performance of those businesses. So it can be in any industry. But Particularly in restaurants, again, yeah, we've had a lot of success in, in, in restaurants. You mentioned Darden and, and Papa John's is honestly, it's been a true joy to work with the company and work with the management team on a really tremendous uh, transformation. To trying to make some news here. I want, want you to reveal your, your next target, Jeff. Um, what, what, about, what about SPACs? Last time we spoke, you were launching a SPAC. You've, you've done one with a data center company, Sixterra. So, that, that's a part of the market that people group in with a lot of the speculative areas, bubbles even, that have popped as the Fed has, has started raising interest rates with the meme trades and the, and the cryptos. And there have been questions about the quality of, of these SPACs. What, what would you say to some of that criticism? Yeah, look, I think SPACs, and I, I've said this before publicly, SPAC is just an alternative way for a company to go public. Um, and, you know, it was more in vogue. It's now a little less in vogue, but it's, it's another way for a company to go public. It's really more of a statement about how inefficient the traditional IPO is. Um, and the traditional IPO really needs to be revamped. Uh, it's, it's too expensive. It's too inefficient. And the SPAC was a way 
um, to go at it. I don't think it's the last way. I think that there just needs to be an evolution as to how companies go public to find the most efficient ways for, the, for them to go public. But there are many good companies that you know have gone public through a merger with a SPAC. Sixterra is one of them. Uh, it's it's a terrific company. It's um, again undervalued uh, compared to its peers, um, and it has an opportunity to continue its um, uh, continue to, its ascent. And it's performed pretty well. One of the one of the better performing uh, DSPAC companies. And you and I have talked about this before. I don't. I don't really know when a company that has finished its merger and is a DSPAC becomes just a regular public company, but I would argue that Sixterra at this point is just a regular public company, and we're going to need to move on from those um, from those labels because it doesn't really matter how a company goes public once it's a public company. And, and we're out of time, but just really quickly, Karen Feinerman write, writing in wants to know, do you think Kohl's is just going through the motions, or is, is it actually going to be pursuing a, a deal here? Yeah, Sarah, I wish I knew. I wish I knew the answer to that, and I don't. I don't know that any of us are going to know the answer to that till till the end. And and by the way, I'm not sure if they know the answer to that. I you know which which look. I've been as you know, I've been a board member for lots of companies. My my suspicion is they're running a a very real process, and it's going to depend on on the outcome as it relates to that process. As a board member, you have to analyze the proposals that come in compared to your risk adjusted standalone. You know, plan, and I, I'm not sure how they could possibly know what that, or a good board member could possibly know the end result of this until they know what those proposals look like and analyze it against their risk-adjusted plan. Keep us posted on that, Jeff. Thank you, and, and all Thanks, the positions. Sarah. We appreciate the time, <laughs> Jeff Thank Smith. You of Starboard. Just give you a quick check of the markets here because we're going strong again. Visa is actually the biggest contributor to the Dow gains today, and we are seeing those gains accelerate in this final hour of trade, up 1.86% on the NASDAQ. S&P is up 1.2%. Every sector is positive right now except for energy. Of course, oil selling off on hopes of a ceasefire or some sort of deal between Russia and Ukraine. Real estate is your best performing sector, along with technology, consumer discretionary, and communication services. Check out shares of Nikola. They are significantly higher over the past month, boosted by news that it has begun production of its battery-powered truck. Finally, coming up, we'll talk to the CEO, Mark Russell, about that news and the impact of rising commodity prices on EV makers. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. 
Welcome back to Closing Bell. Check out some of today's top search tickers on CNBC.com. Ten-year yield holds the top spot. Yields are moving south today, but the big story is that inversion in the two-year, ten-year note yield uh, curve, which is about to occur very close. Tesla's coming in at number two, higher again today. It's been on a very strong hot streak this month. AMC at number three after a huge rally in yesterday's session. And keeping it going today, crude oil next, falling on hopeful signs from Russia-Ukraine peace talks and GameStop giving a little back, 1.6 percent after a pretty tremendous rally this week. Apple was number six today on pace for its 11th straight day of gains, longest winning streak since 2003. Shares of EV maker Nikola rallying 20 percent since announcing last week that it has started production of its electric commercial truck. CEO Mark Russell joins us next for an exclusive interview on the outlook for new orders and how part shortages could impact production. We'll be right back. Shares of Nikola have been on a roll since last week when the company announced it has began production of its tray, the battery electric semi-truck, at its Arizona factory. It does expect to deliver between 300 and 500 trucks this year. And earlier today, the company announced a new partnership with a financing company for sales of Nikola products. Joining us now is today's closer, Nikola CEO, Mark Russell. Mark, it's good to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. I think the reaction from from investors to hearing the news about the truck being in production was, wow, it's finally here and it's a real thing. What are you, what are you saying about where you are right now in this journey? We're super excited to be at this inflection point where we've been shooting for being able to produce a truck since we were in the basement years ago. Uh, so this is really an important milestone in our in our growth as a company to be at the point where we can actually start series production last week and have trucks in the hands of our customers uh, starting next month. So what, tell us what you are seeing as far as orders and the timeline for those. Well, we have no shortage of demand. Uh, everybody wants and needs zero emission trucks. When we go to customers and we say, hey, we've got a truck that's in, in production, uh, we think the, to- the total cost of ownership of this truck compared to a diesel is going to be competitive. And the response to that is, when can I get one? You know, when, when can I get started? So that's enabled us to kind of pick and choose our spots in the market. We're, we're uh, launching with customers who are very uh, allied with us and aligned with us in terms of how we want to go into the market. And we're super excited about these launch customers, and they're super excited about the truck. There's, there's not a shortage of demand of competitive zero-emission vehicle out Mark, I can't help but think of that, that fake truck demo that, that got you guys in trouble with the, with the prototype rolling down the hill. Obviously, it's been a huge source of litigation for you. How, how much work have you had to do to, to gain the credibility of investors who wonder if, if it's the real deal this time around? Well, we're focused on hitting those milestones like the start of production. That's what we want to focus on is going forward, continuing to hit our milestones. So far, we've been able to do pretty much everything we said we would, we would do. And so the question people have about us now is how fast can we scale, especially in the face of the, the headwinds of supply chain shortages that you see around the world today. 
You feel like you've won back the, the trust of the investor community? I, I know the founder, Trevor Milton, is facing a trial that starts as soon as this week or next, facing fraud charges. Um, that's one run the bridge for us. We're focused on moving forward at this point. Uh, we're so excited to be in production with this truck, to be on track to be in production with our fuel cell hydrogen power truck next year, and to have our hydrogen infrastructure going in. We think that that potentially has the chance to, to change the world, to decarbonize one of the hardest sectors of the economy to, de to decarbonize, which is heavy haul, long distance transport. That, that is extremely difficult to decarbonize, and Nikola has a, has a solution for that, which is, of course, why we have no shortage of demand. Yeah, the stock is surging again today, 9.5%, Mark. So what, what about the supply chain shortages and the inflation we're seeing in, in different materials that go into these batteries? Does that set you back at all? How, how are you dealing with all that? We've been able to go forward in spite of it, but I have to say that it's, it's the biggest supply chain challenge I've seen in my several decades of, of trying to do stuff like this. I've never seen uh, shortages so pervasive and so acute. Uh, it's a really difficult situation, which is why you got to give kudos to our team. We have a great internal supply chain, supply chain team, world-class, and they are teamed up with some world-class partners. We have world-class partners, in the of, uh, partners like Bosch and Echo, uh, people who are really, really good on a global scale who are helping us deal with this. And that's how we've been able to get parts to start production of the tray last week and to shoot for producing at least 300 trucks. We think we have enough parts lined up to produce at least 300 trucks this year. Uh, we think yeah. if we are good and lucky too, we might get up to 500 trucks this year and then we can scale up to multiples of that next year. We're, we're, we're cautiously optimistic about being able to do that. Well, keep us posted on the progress. Mark Russell, thank you for the update. See you, Nicola. Thank you. Thanks, Up another almost 10 percent now. Here's where we stand in the markets. Rally day again to end off what has been a very strong month for Wall Street. We're up almost 2 percent now on the Nasdaq session highs. S&P up one and a quarter percent. Every sector higher except for energy and the Dow also gaining traction here in this final hour. 322. Activist investor Carl Icahn setting his sights on grocery giant Kroger. This news just breaking and we've got some new details for you when we come back. Welcome back to Closing Bell. Some news just breaking on Kroger this afternoon. The grocery giant saying activist investor Carl Icahn has submitted his intention to nominate two directors to the company's board. Kroger saying in a release that it first heard from Icahn on Friday, last Friday, and that Icahn has voiced his concerns regarding animal welfare and the use of gestation crates in pork production. Of course, Scott Wapner has been doing some reporting on the news. He joins me now. What, what do you know here about so what here, Icahn's up so to? So here's the letter uh, that Icahn sent to Kroger. It's dated today. Day. Uh, and he has two issues. Number one, he has issues with the CEO pay, uh, which he says um, is unconscionable, sort of the spread between what the CEO makes and what the median worker makes. And then he takes issue with the same thing he's taking issue with at McDonald's, and that is pork. You mentioned these gestation crates. It's the same uh, sort of issue. He says, I'm going to read a little portion from the letter here. The wage gap between the CEO and the medium worker is unconscionable. Our candidates, he's nominated two people to the board, by the way. Our candidates will take our concerns about what he calls deplorable 
animal suffering in these wage gaps uh, at Kroger seriously uh, and add proper oversight. Our concerns regarding Kroger's governance go beyond animal suffering and other terrible practices taking place at industrialized factory farms that he says are supported by Kroger's patronage. I, I know when we first heard about this story, you're like, well, Kroger doesn't produce pigs. Right. Well, they do, you know, they do support the farms where he has issue with the way that pigs uh, are treated. He cites, as I said, the CEO pay package, well, he says was $22.4 million in 2020. He calls it totally reprehensible that while you manage to personally profit from the extremely high margins caused by the pandemic, at the same time reneging on your hero a hero bonus promise to frontline right. workers. Like, I, this, this you know Kroger. Me, yeah. You know Kroger better than anybody. Um, I don't know the company that well, so I don't know what they promised their workers and what they're not allegedly following through on. So they they promised a, a series of hero pay bonus bumps for frontline workers during COVID. This got a ton of attention at this time because they were the heroes, right, that were working throughout the crisis, as did a lot of the other grocery stores. But then the company came under fire for the profits that it was it was making and the CEO pay and, and all that. It's, it's sort of largely moved past that. It's been been raising wages for its employees. I, I find it interesting that Icon is, is sort of an ESG investor now, because when it comes to CEO pay and then, you know, going after animal conditions, that's like... ESG grab back. Yeah, he sided with um, McDonald's in the conversation that, that we had had on, on overtime, that his daughters work with the Humane Society, and that at this stage of his life, he was thinking about different issues, that he wasn't in that to make money. And from what I understand, this is an equally small position in Kroger's as well, so money is not the object here. I'll quote you another part from the letter. It says, not my goal to tell you how to run Kroger operationally, nor make money from my small investment and proxy campaign, I view it as my mission to make changes where, uh, where I can by doing what I do best in areas that I consider to be glaring injustices. Um, I think it's this stage, this, you know, late stage of his career, he's focusing in part because he's still sure. very active as a activist that we all know, uh, he's just focused on some different issues. Well, Kroger has been a very well-performing stock. It's up 25 percent. It's one of the best-performing staples. So yep. as far as agitating for board seats, proxy fight, that it might be more challenging. And the other thing I would ask, Scott, is what is McDonald's. They came out with a proxy statement yesterday, and I don't think there's been much traction by Mr. Icahn when it comes to calling for this. So right. the timing is interesting. It's a small position that. that he has in McDonald's. There's only so much influence he can exert from a financial standpoint. You know, and, and McDonald's, by the way, has pledged to make some changes as well. And um, Kroger's responding here, too. They said they first heard from Icon, as you, I think you read, Friday, uh, Friday March, Rodney, March, tell you that. Yeah, March, March 25th, uh, and Icon voiced his concerns. Then they obviously say that their practices are upstanding, uh, et cetera. But, you know, more to come. Right. If I know anything about Carl Icon, position size notwithstanding, he's not going anywhere, at right. least now, right? He's going to try and exert as much change as he can in the period of time he feels like devoting to this. And it's personal, right? It's a, in part, motivated by family issue. His daughter works with the Humane Society, cares about the issue, buys a small position and says, I'm Carl Icahn, you're not, and I'm going to try and exert the change well, that I can. He can make some positive changes because I don't think it goes against anything Kroger's trying to do when it comes to, you know, working with its suppliers to be humane to animals. Yeah. I so. mean, this, look, the CEO pay is a whole nother issue. True. Um, and he has issue, as he said, with that. We'll see what happens. He, he nominated the two people by the deadline to do so. That's why this all comes out now. He had to do it by the deadline, which was just recent. So he did it. And now we see.
Look forward to more from you in overtime. Right, Scott Sarah. Wapner. Thanks. We'll see you in a little bit. Joining us on Closing Bell. We'll be right back with the market zone. Robinhood, by the way, still rallying more than 20%. We'll hit that and much more. Left in the trading day, we are now in the closing bell market zone. Truett's Keith Lerner is here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Jeffrey's Randy Connick on what to watch in Lululemon's earnings coming after the bell. And Evercore, CJ Muse on what to expect from Micron's results. Stocks, though, are in the green, rallying in this final hour near session highs, up one and a quarter percent on the S&P. This even as the bond market flashes a potential recession sign. The 10-year and the two-year Treasury yield spread close to inverting. Keith Lerner, Truist Advisory Services, co-chief investment officer. Keith, is it, is it odd to you that the market is rallying as this Treasury, very reliable yield curve recession indicator is flashing red? Yeah, well, first, it's great to be with you, Sarah. It's remarkable that the market's now only down less than 3% for the year. And regarding your question, uh, the yield curve matters, but it's not the only thing that matters. And as we've looked at the work, um, historically, it does not have, historically has not paid to sell just because we have a yield curve, curve inversion. It does raise the risk, but if you look historically, we've studied seven yield curve invas- uh, inversions, and 12 months later, the market's been up five out of seven times with an average gain of 11%. So, again, it, it matters, Sarah, but it, there's a lot of other things that, that matter as well. Including what the Fed does. And earlier this afternoon, I did speak with the Philadelphia Fed President Patrick Harker about the Fed's plan for rate hikes and the pace of it. I asked him whether he believes there should be a 50 or double basis point hike at the next meeting. Here's what he said about that. Not at this point, but I wouldn't take it off the table. I am a median dot, if you look at the dot plot. So I was in for seven 25 basis point increases. He did say that he thinks the Fed can accomplish what he calls a safe landing, but that there may be bumps along the way. He also weighed in on what he believes is the best way for the Fed to shrink its balance sheet. Listen to this. My view on the balance sheet is we start on the process of reducing the size and then put it on autopilot, not use that as a tool of monetary policy. It's hard to do policy with two things moving at the same time. So let's put the balance sheet normalization on autopilot, and then we can adjust, if necessary, the Fed funds rate going forward. The- Keith, how's the market going to take that? L- last time Fed Chair Powell said the, the balance sheet shrinking was on autopilot, market didn't like it. Yeah, I think right there, it just shows it's complicated. Uh, historically, you know, the, as we start to tie in policy early on, the markets still tend to rise. But this is one of the reasons why we thought we were going to have more significant corrections, more frequent corrections. And I think this debate of whether the Fed is moving too far or too fast will, con- you know, will continue as a whole. So, you know, one thing we look back historically, Sarah, and we said, you know, where has the Fed historically been when they started to first raise rates as far as the unemployment rate and inflation, their dual mandate? And it shows that behind the curve, right? If you look at the average unemployment rate, it's been 6%. Today, we're sub 4 And inflation has been only around 2.5% when they started to raise rates. Today, it's above 7 So they have a big task in front of them. That transition is going to create a lot of volatility. And that's why, even though we still think the primary market trend is higher, the amount of risk we're taking today is less than it would have been a year ago or two years ago in the early part of this market cycle. 
Got it, Keith. We're going to come back to you before the close. Take a look inside the market. But do you want to hit some movers right now? Robinhood, for instance, jumping higher today after the company announced it is adding an additional four hours of extended trading. So the brokerage will now allow clients to trade between 7 a.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern as it tries to reverse slowing growth. Previously, Robinhood clients could only trade 30 minutes before the market opens and two hours after trading ends on Wall Street. But new hours match what many rivals currently offer. Let's bring in Kate Rooney for more. Kate, Why is the market so excited about this? How does it fit in with the broader strategy? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Robin had, Robin had, excuse me, has really had to change its playbook uh, since it went public last summer. You know, the retail trading boom has slowed down, and that has been reflected in the stock. It's had to look to uh, some of the other areas of finance, like banking, spending products, and 401ks. But the important backdrop here and the reason the stock is up so much is that trading and investing really is still Robinhood's bread and butter. So transaction-based revenue or payment for order flow makes up about 72% of Robinhood's Robinhood's top line. So by expanding the trading hours here, it's expanding the opportunity to make money. And analysts see that as a positive stock getting a boost as a result. And it has been sold off. It's uh, down significantly from uh, from the high last year. And the expansion of trading hours also appears to be in reaction to people just going back to work. So in a blog post, they really lay this out and explain that dynamic. They say customers are telling Robinhood that they're either working or they're preoccupied during regular market hours. And a lot of these new investors really got into trading while they may have been working from home. So they're sort of trying to accommodate that and letting people either react to market news, just have more time to trade. Uh, they also talk about sort of the eventual goal of 24-7 stock trading, which would mirror crypto markets. And as we know, those are open mm-hmm. 24-7. And on the weekends, and a lot of Robinhood traders, uh, they do both. So stocks and crypto um, tend to be in the same portfolio and a lot of Cases for Robinhood traders, they may have grown to expect the ability you know, to trade longer hours. So it seems like Robinhood is looking to pivot and accommodate here, but stock up big on that news. Yeah, the meme stop rally this week helps as well, I would think. Kate, thank you very much. Also, just a shout out to Stephen Chuback, the financials analyst at Wolf Research, who this weekend put out his first positive note on, on Robinhood, said it's a tactical long. Good call there. Lululemon gearing up to report fourth quarter results after the bell. Shares are rallying today. They're still down about 11 percent this year. Analysts will be watching for progress on the integration of the mirror acquisition still. Plus, any comments about the new footwear line that they launched just last week? With us now is Jeffrey's retail analyst, Randy Connick. Randy, for so long, this was the favorite of, of analysts like you. Now that Nike has had such a strong quarter and is continuing to grow share, where, where does Lulu stand? Yeah, look, I think you hit the nail on the head. Everyone knows that Lululemon's going to have a good quarter. They actually pre-announced the quarter uh, at the ICR conference in January. So it all comes down to what's the outlook and where do we go from here? If you think about Lulu, you know, the, the growth algorithm expected by the street uh, going into 2022 and beyond, it's over 15% revenue growth. But as you said, you know, Nike's doing a great job of, you know, coming back into the marketplace and Nike's Nike. So, You know, if you take Nike really on fire, combined with a lot more competition for Lulu, combined with what you just talked about, uh, mirror integration of the acquisition of mirror, uh, integrating that as well as the recent launch of the footwear line, we think that Lululemon has a lot on their plate going into 2022. And we think that that lack of focus or that added added items on their plate could dilute their focus and create some issues of execution as we go into the back part of 2022. That's so interesting, Randy, because a lot of analysts are excited about these new revenue streams and these new products because Lulu has had really good success 
with product and with resonating with consumers. Just for context, you're on hold with a price target of 340, which is basically where we are right now. Why are you not a believer in that case? Because it's always been, sure, Nike is, is maybe bigger and more competitive right now, but Lulu has such a high growth rate ahead. It's coming from such a small base internationally and with product lines. Yeah, I think what's interesting for investors to kind of consider is to look at other movies or other stocks that have done things like this before. A company that comes to mind is Under Armour. If you remember back 10, 15 years ago, Under Armour was all about selling you know, shorts and shirts. And then they went into footwear. Uh, and then when they went into footwear, it diluted their focus off of uh, shirts and shorts and so on and so forth or, or poor apparel. So we think that's a key risk item for Lululemon from here because for the last, you know, since its IPO, yeah. it's focused on just selling apparel. Now going into footwear and, and with this mirror acquisition, that's been not is very challenging to say the least. We think that's going to put a lot of issues ahead for Lulu in terms of being able to execute upon all these items in 2022, 23, and 24. Skeptical, Randy Connick. Thank you for joining us from Jeffries on thank Lulu. You. The other mover after the bell will be Micron, which reports shares are up nearly 3% as we head into the close. Let's bring in CJ Muse, Evercore Semiconductor Analyst. You're expecting, CJ, a strong quarter, right? A beat and a raise and say that the, the sell-off in this stock has been overdone? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, you know, stocks underperformed the stocks by uh, 15 points in the last uh, four weeks. And, and so given uh, our vision for a small beat on the guide, uh, we think that's enough. Obviously, there's fears around uh, the end market consumer in an inflationary environment and the impact on PC and smartphone demand. But that's not it for the company. We think servers, cloud, uh, auto, uh, networking, uh, industrial will we'll make up for that. And, and we think the second half will continue to grow versus the first half. Supply chain also going to be important. CJ Muse, thank you for your quick take on Micron. Also want to hit energy because it is the only sector in the red dragged down by oil prices, which are lower about a percent right now on Russia and Ukraine talks. Joining us now is Chris Wheaton, Stiefel Oil and Gas Analyst. Which way do prices go with, with these hopes now of some sort of peace deal and especially with the new developments around the Chinese lockdowns, which have pressured prices? I think we all got to hope that the peace talks do go somewhere and uh, that is going to have an effect on oil prices, definitely, Sarah. I think in the short run, uh, with the market's concerned about uh, shut, uh, further coronavirus impact in China, um, and also the impact themselves that high oil prices are having. But if you think of those impacts as being in a few hundred thousand barrels a day, market's still got to get past the fact that you've probably taken somewhere between two and four million barrels a day of Russian oil exports off the market. And that's a pretty big chunk of uh, missing supply to cope with. So, Chris, ultimately, what do you do with these stocks, which have had already such a strong run-up? If, if, the, if the environment still looks pretty bullish for the companies, the U.S. now asking these producers to get, to get back into production mode. But you're still looking at a pretty constructive oil price scenario because you're looking at uh, stocks of both oil and also refined product uh, that are still pretty tight. If you're looking at the refined product market, it's quite clear that the, the gasoline and diesel prices are going to stay elevated for some period of time. And you're looking at refining margins that are going to probably stay elevated, maybe for a period of time, you know, into, into certainly into next year. And that's going to be quite you know, positive for a uh, you know, whole uh, swathe of stocks, particularly if um, those prices and those refining margins can hold. Yeah, what does it do for earnings expectations in the group? And, and where do you see the biggest dislocations with the prices there? 
Well, I think you see, it focuses on things like the refining margins, because I think the market's missing the fact that refining margins, for example, are going to be you know, quite elevated versus, uh, versus crude benchmarks. And I think the market is quite fixated on where the oil price, the Brent, bent, the Brent benchmark is. Whereas actually there's an awful lot of trading around that at the moment, and Brent is less of a benchmark for the global oil industry than it's been for um, probably as long as I've been an analyst, you know, 20 years. Uh, and that's because you're seeing this big dislocation in uh, in global trade, and you're seeing some uh, countries being able to buy cheap Russian crude and benefit from that. And obviously China and India are two good examples of that, as they're still keeping their trade with Russia going. Chris Wheaton, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. For joining us with some of your views. Let's get back to the broader market right now because we are still going strong up 311 here on the Dow as we go into the close. Keith Lerner rejoins us. Keith, I would also point out the VIX is below 19. Yesterday we did close below 20. So fear coming out of the market as well. I, I think you, you mentioned you're still long, but wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily be adding a whole lot to risk. How, how do you think about this? Or is this, a, is this a technical move based on positioning or have the fundamentals really changed for you? to be a buyer. Well, I think there's a little bit of, of, of both, right? It was a technical move. We got way oversold, very negative sentiment, and, and people were not positioned for this rebound. In fact, as I speak to clients, everyone's like, why is this market going up? So, and we're heading into quarter end. So I think we continue to squeeze up over the next few days into quarter end. I will say the fundamentals are strong. The earnings actually this year have continued to rise at a new cycle high. So I think that's a, that's a positive. But what I think as we move into the quarter, I think we're more in a range. We're moving towards the up, upper end of the range with the 20 multiple on the S&P you know, or near a 20 multiple today. So I still think we're going to be somewhat more in, uh, um, range bound and, and digest some of these recent gains as we head into the next quarter. Keith Lerner, Keith, thank you very much for being with me here into the close. Just want to review where we are. The ARK Innovation Fund right now surging 7%. Every stock in that ETF is higher right now. A lot of these stocks have a lot of catching up to do, but Robinhood is part of the story there. It's up 23%. Some of the biotechs that Kathy Wood likes as well, higher. Again, they've been some of the hardest hit parts of the market. Real estate is your best performing sector right now in the S&P. Every sector, though, is positive except for energy. Technology is number two right there. Remember, we have Micron earnings coming after the bell. Consumer Discretionary also going strong. Tesla's up another half a percent. It's up 8.6% so far for the week. And it's only Tuesday. Uh, still about 12% off the recent highs. What else is working right now? Communication services, utilities, staples, industrials, all green. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up almost a full percent right now, more than 300 points. Visa is the biggest contributor to the gains. Nike also adding about 26 points. Boeing, 35 points to the Dow. The Nasdaq is doing the best with the tech rebound today. Apple up for the 11th day in a row. Longest win streak for that company since 2003. Again, coming up to the end of the month of March, and it has been so solid for the stock market. A big surprise as the Fed began hiking interest rates and hinting at more rate hikes to come. And of course, the war in Ukraine, some hopes of a peace deal, but nothing on the table just yet. There goes the bell. Near session highs up 1.2% in the S&P 500. That's going to do it for me here on Closing Bell. Have a great evening, everyone. I'll send it into overtime now with Scott Wapner. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.